Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi everyone, it's Annika. Welcome to this week's episode of Speak Up. I'm positive all of you listening would be very aware of a number of genetic disorders such as Down syndrome, Fragile X, Kleinfelter syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome, Williams syndrome, just to name a few. But what happens when a child has the symptoms of a genetic disorder, but these symptoms can't be diagnosed despite extensive genetic testing? Well, they become part of SWAN, or Syndromes Without a Name, a community of unique children with undiagnosed or rare genetic conditions. I am so honoured today to be chatting to Heather Renton. Heather is the CEO and founder of SWAN Australia. She is a consumer representative on a number of different advisory groups and committees and is a passionate health and disability advocate. She is also a mum of two kids, one of which has a rare genetic condition called FOXP1 syndrome, which I'm sure we will explore further in our chat today. Thank you so much for joining me, Heather. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm so pleased to be deep diving into SWAN with you today, Heather. It's a topic I'm so keen to learn more about, and I'm wondering if I can start by asking you what the term SWAN specifically refers to. So the acronym SWAN stands for Syndrome Without a Name. Um, It's the term given to, I guess, hard-to-diagnose conditions, conditions that don't have a name, they remain undiagnosed. But we've taken that term a little bit further. Um, Not only does Syndromes Without a Name, the peer support group, support families who have children with undiagnosed genetic conditions, but we also support families who have children with rare genetic conditions. So there might be one or two in Australia. They might actually just have a gene name. It's not actually called a syndrome. So the conditions are incredibly rare. And we know when a child has a rare condition, it can be incredibly isolating for families. So our job is to try and connect families with other with one another for information sharing and peer support. Mm. And if I can sort of direct your attention to those kids that don't perhaps have a diagnosis, so not the ones that have a rare genetic condition where there's only a couple of kids in Australia with that, but perhaps that group of children that don't get a diagnosis, why might that happen? Look, it could happen for a number of reasons. The child might actually have two rare genetic conditions, so that could be a bit confusing to diagnose because the symptoms um, might fall into one condition or they might fall into another condition. It may be that the um, function of the gene hasn't been discovered yet. You know, we still don't know what a lot of the genes in the body do. Um, So the rare condition might not have a name, mightn't have been discovered. Um, It could be that the syndrome has never been seen before. So a clinician might be careful um, in their 
diagnosis of it. You know, they don't want to think the gene might be disease causing when it isn't or vice versa. So they just might be a bit hesitant until they see another case that presents um, in a similar format. And sometimes kids have very subtle phenotypes, so facial features or symptoms or signs, um, and they might become more obvious as the condition um, progresses, the child grows. Um, so when a child's younger, they might not get a diagnosis, but as they grow and more symptoms develop, they might be easier to diagnose. And the other reason is not every child has access to the latest genomic um, technology such as whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing. And I guess what you'd call the standard way of testing when we first started out on our diagnostic journey was in the form of, of a microarray test. And that really only has, you know, I guess between 10 and 20% chance of finding an answer. It's more like a dosage test, you know, is there an extra bit of chromosome or is there deletion? Where's this um, genome sequencing test really looks at each gene um, to try and find an answer for families. Mm, you've touched on a few different type of types of testing there. I'm just wondering, Heather, can you give us a bit of an insight into what the actual process would be for a family? What do they go through before they get to this um, situation where their child is considered swan? Yes, look, it's different for different families. I guess if you have a child with um, significant health challenges, they might go through a faster pathway to try and get a diagnosis. Um, there's some great work being done by clinical geneticists um, that rapidly sequence the genes of critically ill children to try and get a diagnosis. But gener generally, the pathway would be... Um, that a child is not meeting their milestones. And this is often picked up first by a maternal health nurse or a GP. They will then refer on to a paediatrician. The paediatrician might um, do a little bit of testing, perhaps organise organize a fragile X test or a microarray, um, and then they will often um, refer on to a genetic service. And are these services easy to access for families or are there barriers to accessing them? Oh, unfortunately, there's a lot of barriers. Yeah, I thought um, so. Genetic services are in demand and, you know, there's inequity between states, there's inequity between services. Some have a five-year waiting list, some might have a 12-month waiting list. So it's not easy. We also don't have a Medicare item number for this whole exome sequencing or whole, whole genome sequencing for children over the age of 10. So it's it's very difficult for families who can't afford to pay mm. this test out of pocket to get this test done because not everyone has, you know, a spare $1,500, $2,000. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask what the sort of um, financial outlay would be for a family, but that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's usually about $1,500 um, for a singleton where you just sequence the child's DNA or around about $4,500 for a trio where you would sequence mum, dad and the child. Um but look, that's just an estimate and mm. I guess it would depend on what genetic service you went to. Mm. And what state you're in by the sound of it too. That's right. <laughs> and look, of course, geneticists would love to see everyone and, you know, we'd love everyone to see a genetic counsellor as well. But unfortunately, you know, it's a workforce issue, it's a funding issue um, and 
there's also the other side of it. Not everyone realizes their child might have an undiagnosed or rare genetic condition. They might just think my child's got autism or my child's got an intellectual disability. Um, They might not see any dysmorphic features. There may not be any dysmorphic features. So, And not everyone wants a diagnosis. So I think we have to respect that as well. Mm. I was going to touch on that lived experience of families, actually, and I know this is very much part of your job with Swan Australia, absolutely. What What is the lived experience of families going through genetic testing and joining the Swan community? I, I'm sensing it could be a heartbreaking process to go through all that testing and then to reach this point of your child being considered Swan. Is that, I don't know, do people feel like that gives them enough of an answer? Look, people want to know they've done everything in their power to find an answer if they want an answer. But when you don't have an answer, you've got all these mix of emotions and feelings. You know, it's incredibly isolating. It's confusing. You know, why haven't I got an answer? It's Mm. frustrating. You know, surely they can be just doing something more. You know, we're in 2022. Surely science has caught up and we can get an answer. Um, And I think there is a lack of understanding of the complexity. It's not easy to get an answer. It involves, you know, a geneticist, it involves scientific curators. It's trying to find where the gene, there's gene variants that might be a significance. Um, so it's not an easy task. It's not like just doing a blood test and looking um, for a, a simple change in it. It's very complex. And, you know, it can take up to nine months, a year, sometimes longer um, to get an answer. And if you don't get an answer through whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing, then there's other avenues you can take, but they're usually explored through undiagnosed disease programs within Australia. And again, they've got limited funding, limited capacity. Um, Parents go through that huge anxiety Mm. of not knowing, you know, is my child going to regress? How long will they live for? Will they have a healthy life? Will they walk? Will they talk? Range of emotions. And then there's the grief when you grief for the grief for the typical child that you don't have, you know, giving up those dreams that maybe my child won't be able to work. They won't be able to get married. They won't be able to go to university you're emotionally vulnerable, you know, and it comes up on you when you least expect it. For example, you might be pushing your 14-year-old child at the park on a swing and a two-year-old will come up next to you and just push themselves and you think, oh, this isn't Mm -hmm. typical. So it gets you when you're tired, when you're stressed, and we know having a swan child is incredibly stressful Mm -hmm. and it's stressful on relationships. The stats are out there for carers. Relationships break down. I think it's something like 80 or 90% of relationships break down. And a lot of parents go through that denial. You know, this isn't really happening. No, my child's fine. They're just a little bit behind. Um, And many carers end up on antidepressants. And I know it's a journey and I always describe the first five years of being in the fog. You're just in survival mode. You've got multiple appointments and you can't even take a breath to take a step back and breathe because you're just going from here to there to everywhere, appointment after appointment after appointment. And it's a lonely journey because... 
you often, the support networks, for example, a mother's group that a new parent might um, typically have, are very hard for first-time swan mums because everyone else's child's meeting their milestones and your child isn't. Mm. So it's not an easy pathway. No, it just sounds very overwhelming listening to you. And I think as clinicians, we need to be really aware of that lived experience when we do work with our little ones that might have um, all a diagnosis of anything really, but if they do happen to be considered SWOM because our our families are going through an incredibly overwhelming, unspeakable journey. And um, as we know, we need to be supporting that part of the little kid we're working with, the family is such an important part and it's we can't ignore that because um, we need to support those families to then support their little one. Um, I, it was interesting just to hear you touch on some of those stats um, uh, in regards to relationship breakdown, Heather, but I am wondering if I could touch on some more specific stats related to SWAN. What kind of numbers are we looking at in terms of kids born each year that would be considered SWAN? Look, unfortunately, we don't keep good stats in Australia and many other countries don't keep good stats either. So we estimate at least 2,500 children would be born each year without a diagnosis. And if you go a little bit further and bring out, you know, children living with rare conditions as well as undiagnosed, you'd probably be looking at about 350,000 children, not to 18, living in Australia at any one time with an undiagnosed or rare genetic condition. Mm. And It's a, it's a look, big number. It is a big number. And unfortunately, 50 to 70% of SWAN children won't actually get a diagnosis in their lifetime. Um, and that's a really hard figure to take in. Just imagine if you had a child with a regressive condition, a life-limiting condition, and no one could give you an answer. And then think about if you want to have more children, you know, how will that impact? If you don't know what's causing your child's development delay or health um, condition, there's a chance that you might have another child with the same condition. And we do have a number of SWAN families who have multiple children with the same condition. Mm, They're really interesting facts. So I'm wondering, so SWAN Australia is something that you put together, seeing obviously a massive gap um, in support services for these families, Heather. And I'm just so keen for you to give us a bit of information about how you went about setting up Swan Australia and what um, what you guys do. What's the great work you guys do? Sure. Um, I think I was very naive when I set up um, Swan Australia. <laughs> I thought I was just setting up a small little peer support group. I'm and- going to say brave, not naive. <laughs> genomics exploded and here we are you know we've got um, well over 700 families that we try and support to the best of our ability and we are a very small team so it's really just myself and only this year did we get a um, part-time admin officer but we work incredibly hard because we're incredibly passionate passionate about what we do and you know the passion drives you you have a parent say thank you or you've made such a difference and it drives your passion so we still very much focus on peer support unfortunately COVID has 
put a dampener on a lot of our face-to-face events because we've got vulnerable children. They can end up in ICU if they get a cold. Mm -hmm. So we've put our face-to-face events on hold, but we still have a strong virtual presence. So we do some informal catch-ups. So we do a general informal catch-up by Zoom once a month. We have an over-10s catch-up virtually because we find parents who have kids over 10, you know, they want to talk about puberty, post-school options. Whereas when you've got a younger child, you're just in survival mode and you're trying to find what therapy did you use and what were the outcomes and what therapist, you know, tips did you get? Very different conversations. We also run a SWAN um, informal bereavement group because we have a number of families whose children have passed away and we want to give them a platform where they can, you know, talk about their emotions. And again, it's a very different story to when you have a child who's living. We run a Meet the Expert series each month. So we have a guest speaker. So we've had, uh, for instance, this month we had someone talk about um, capacity building for teens. Last month, we had Kate Strawn from Siblings Australia. We've had psychologists speak. We've had people talk about wills and estates. So our members can suggest topics of interest and we'll try and find a speaker and they're very well um, attended. And we also extend those Meet the Expert series out to Masters of Genetic Counselling students or if an allied health student would like to um, benefit and learn a little bit more about that topic. We've got the platform, Let's Collaborate and Mm use it as a learning experience because at the end of the day, the people who tune into those um, as a professionals or student will be the ones supporting our families in the future. So I think if we have um, can upskill them a little bit and they just take one thing away from a presentation and put it into everyday practice, then that's a good thing. Mm. We celebrate um, a couple of um, awareness days each year. So Rare Disease Day um, falls on the last um, – day of February each year and that's where we raise awareness of a whole range of rare conditions because let's face it all our families have rare conditions whether they're diagnosed or not mm. and we celebrate undiagnosed children's awareness day towards the end of October and their community days it's about raising awareness um, getting our families together for some fun um, and an opportunity for Swan families to meet each other and form friendships for support. Um, the other thing we do is we have a lot of information on our website, so useful information about genetic testing. So if you don't understand how genetic testing works or the di- diagnosis pathways, you could watch one of our animations on our video or read our resources, download our brochures. We also have um, some brochures available in Easy English. So if you've got a family who has English is not their first language or the mum has or dad has an intellectual disability, then they might benefit from our Easy English brochures because we know genetics is a very complex um, area to understand. Um, so if we can offer it in plain English as well as Easy English, hopefully mm. support um more families and we have a number of parent stories and we're working on some videos parent videos some other resources just to give families a starting point so there's a useful links page there's some useful resources which might have a link to you know how to apply for a companion card or an interesting podcast or the NDIS so 
we try and put as much information as we can on there, but we also have a parent support line. So Swan parents can ring us up and we can give guidance as well. That sounds amazing. From your naive beginnings, that sounds like an absolute incredible um, support association you've put together, Heather. It sounds amazing. I'm wondering, though, um, you've mentioned lots of really practical tips there. If I, you know, as a speech pathologist, did happen to receive a referral um, and on the paperwork it mentioned that the child uh, that I will pick up has um, is considered swan or perhaps has a rare genetic condition or perhaps has an undiagnosed syndrome. And this is something that I haven't worked with before. What would you suggest to that speech pathologist? What's the starting point? I would connect them up with swan. I th- really believe you can never underestimate the value of peer support. And we have some families who said, oh, I I wish I'd known about you earlier or I knew about you. I sat on the Facebook group, but it wasn't till I went to an event that I really got the value of peer support and connecting up. Um, So I think the more you can do to support families and point them in the right direction, um, they're better for everyone because we know for parents in a good place, it's better for the child. Mm, absolutely. So definitely checking in to see whether that family is linked with Swan Australia already and if not, facilitating that linkage. Um, and what about as that speech pathologist though? It sounds like there's lots of perhaps online PD opportunities that they could link in through Swan Australia if they hadn't worked in this space before? Um, Can they just give you guys a phone call to sort of touch base and say, what do I need to know and where do I start? Is that okay for people? Absolutely. And we recently had a speech pathologist um, contact us, say, look, I'm seeing a lot of families from cold backgrounds. I really want a stack of your easy English brochures at my practice so I can give them. So absolutely, we can send you hard copies of a our brochures, we can send you to the downloadable copies on our website. Um, Or if you just want to go, actually, this family's really struggling with the genetic process. I don't understand enough about it. Can you explain it to me in plain English? And because I'm not a geneticist, so I'm not going to use any (laughs) genetic terms. Um, But I think use us as a resource. If you go, Mm. if you're struggling with an NDIS um, letter, we can say, you know, this is what we think in our experience works well and we are working on a resource for professionals to upskill in writing um, letters of support around the NDIS when they're dealing with undiagnosed and rare genetic. Yeah, I was going to mention that actually because we know the NDIS once kids turn seven really love a diagnosis and so when you have a little one that doesn't have a diagnosis, what is the experience of, of working with NDIS in that situation? Yes, well, there's one particular state that I won't mention, but I've had to jump in and write two letters of support. Um, We do do systemic advocacy, um, but when there's a need, when a family just rings you in distress saying the NDIS don't want to do my planning meeting because we don't have a diagnosis, Mm. I do put a letter on Swan Letterhead and I quote the Act and it's not a diagnosis-based scheme, it's a needs-based scheme. And I think, you know, one of the um, big concerns with the NDIS, um, you know, as great as it is when it works, when it doesn't work, it really can be a very stressful period um, for families. And there's a lack of training with LACs, with um, early childhood approach partners, with planners, 
you know, we have a specialist um, committee that sits within the NDIS around intellectual disability or family and carers, but we don't have one around rare genetic conditions. And that's one of the things Swan is lobbying for. Mm, Well, good luck. It's very needed, that's for sure. Now, Heather, you are so generous because I know that you're very happy to chat about your own lived experience um, with your lovely daughter, Rebecca. Um, And I really want to say a massive thank you from our profession for being vulnerable and sharing your lived experience because that's a big deal. Uh, It helps us immensely, though, as clinicians to um, hear and reflect upon the lived experience of people that we work with. So firstly, a huge thank you before we sort of launch into these personal questions. Um, Now, I know that Rebecca was diagnosed with FOXP1 syndrome after a period of being considered SWAN, I believe. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about FOXP1 syndrome? Because I know it has quite um, a relationship to speech and language difficulties, and I'd love you to give us some information about that. Sure. Um, it took us nine years to get that FOXP1 syndrome diagnosis. We had two misdiagnoses prior to that. And when we finally got that diagnosis, it made sense. So Rebecca took a long time to walk, a long time to talk. So she really didn't start talking um, until she was four. So very delayed. Um, We used to use keyword signs with her. Um, And then we got that diagnosis of FOXP1. Well, FOXP1 affects language. So it explained why she had such difficulties with expressive and receptive language, with pragmatics, with communication um, in general and Rebecca will talk very fast and it's and sort of blend her words so it's very difficult to understand I probably catch what she says 90% of the time um, probably my partner my son would catch it 80% time her therapist maybe 50% of the time but a general stranger maybe 20 to 30% of the time so until she learns to slow down her speech rate and project her voice, she will always have challenges with her speech like every other child with FOXP1 syndrome. Uh, One of the other challenges with FOXP1 syndrome is um, difficult behaviour and, you know, it's very hard to transition Rebecca from one task to another. So it's very frustrating um, as a parent and we don't always keep our cool, even though we try and we try, you know, those strategies that psychologists suggest, but they don't always work. And Mm -hmm. uh, I will give you an example, even just last Monday. Now, Rebecca is almost 16. I drove her to school. She wanted me to park around the back front of the school. We parked out the back because we were running um, late and you can only park around the front if you get there between 8.30 and 8.40. Well, she didn't want to get out of the car. And I said, well, come on, you know, you need to go to school. No, I'm not walking. So she's a little monkey. Anyway, I thought, well, I'm not going to give in. So I sat my phone and I answered some emails and made a couple of calls and then after an hour we were still sitting there. So I rang the school and said, look, we're here. We've been here since 10 to 9. The aide came out. They were having a class party. You know, there's chocolate cake. She loves chocolate cake. Party Mm -hmm. food, loves party food. Pringles, apple juice. No, didn't want to play a game. So some days bribes work. Some days Mm. they don't. And then her teacher came out, still couldn't get out of the car. 
we drove home. So some days you just, that's all you can do. (laughs) Just not persist and just, um, yeah, that's right. Go home and start afresh tomorrow. (laughs) That's right. You know, that was a good waste of two hours. So they're the type of challenges. And when you have a younger kid who does things like that, you can just pick them up and put them in the car or take Mm. them out of the car. But 16-year-old, you can't. Um, She also struggles with fine and gross motor skills. And there's a number of other symptoms um, such as poor eyesight and campodactyly where she can't straighten three of her fingers. Um, And I guess, you know, with like so many genetic conditions, there's a range of symptoms um, and your child doesn't necessarily have to have all those symptoms. But with FOXP1, most of them have an autism diagnosis as well. Mm. And when she got diagnosed at the age of nine, there were probably about 13 cases in the world. Now we're up to about 14 cases in Australia and wow. around 250 to 300 in the world. And that's all come with um the explosion of genomics and geneticists seeing more and more children that they recognise, oh, these are symptoms and signs of FOXP1, there's a good chance this child might have it. And I suspect, you know, a lot more will be diagnosed in the future. And that's, you know, general with a lot of other rare conditions as well. Mm. And I, given those speech and language challenges that you've touched on and the fact that Rebecca wasn't talking until much later than other children, I suspect you've been consumers of speech pathology for many, many, many years as a family. And I'd really love it if you could give us all a bit of an insight into your experiences of accessing paediatric speech pathology services. Yes, well, we know there's a shortage of allied health professionals, speech therapists um, fall into that category. So to get to the good ones, often there's a big waiting list. Now, I guess we were fortunate because we jumped on the bandwagon before NDIS. And even when NDIS came about, we got one of the first plans in Victoria. So we were grateful. I personally don't waste my time with junior speech therapists just because my daughter is so complex. She needs to see a senior speech therapist. But one of the challenges with that is speech senior speech therapists are in demand and really they probably don't want to see teenage children. Mm. They want to move them off so they can see more people and help more people. So I kind of get that. But I think, you know, one of the advantages of seeing a senior speech pathologist when you have a child with, you know, complex condition and difficult behaviour is their ability to read your child to pivot. So they might have their session planned out in the head. And then if Rebecca doesn't want to play the game, they've got to quickly pivot and use a different set of strategies. Um, So they've got to be adaptable. And the other thing is, you know, early on, we saw a speech pathologist I think my daughter was probably six at the time and she used to always come in fairy dresses and tiaras and the speech pathologist was trying to get her to you know dress in typical clothes because six-year-olds don't wear fairy dresses and tiaras which I kind of beg to differ on oh I would not care Well, you did at this day. My sixteen-year-old still went Yara and still right. up, and I think we accept her for who she is. Absolutely. And as long as she's got clothes on, I really don't care. I mean, she went to the snow the other day with school and wore a summer skirt and a tiara. Does it worry me? 
No, she's Pick cold. your battles, and that's and not worth picking a battle over. <laughs> that was her problem. <laughs> um, but one of the things is when you don't have a diagnosis, you don't always know what therapy is going to work best. So will oral motor therapy work for this child? Will rest therapy, you know, rapid syllable transition treatment work for the um child so you might try a number of different types of therapy and I'm not a speech therapist so mm. I'm sure you're doing you very well though you've got the lingo down pat Heather <laughs> I'm sure you know a lot more you know you no, you're doing great um you might have to try a number of different um options before you get the one that works whereas if you have a child with a more common condition you might go to the therapy that you know will work straight away so you're not wasting time and money mm. and resources going down a pathway that's really not going to have um, any benefits because that's the condition and it doesn't respond well to that type of treatment. Mm. So you've kind of touched on a few things there, Um, you know, senior speech pathologists having more experience to pivot um, and be flexible within an intervention session. Is there anything else from your opinion, Heather, that really good speech pathologists do when working with complex kids? I think follow the child's lead, follow their interests because you'll engage them more easily. Um, I guess be patient. Um, you know, you could read up about that child's condition. Go to ask the family, is there a plain English fact sheet on that condition if it's a rare condition? So there's a website in the UK called Unique and they have a lot of plain English fact sheets on different conditions. Um, the parent might even have put um, a tip sheet for school, for example, of dot points of how the condition impacts their child. So ask the parent, do you have any tips? I think you've got to remember that the parents are the child's best expert. They know what's typical for the child. They know their child better than anyone else. So it's a real partnership. Mm. Um, it's not just you're there to help the child. It's have a holistic approach and work with the family share resources, get them to share ideas as well. Well, what do you think about this? Or have you tried this? And then the parent can go, well, actually it didn't work. Or I just don't have capacity to do speech homework at the moment. Or my child's going through puberty. I don't want to throw any more hurdles at her. So I think, you know, really accept the child for who they are. Don't try and change them. Follow the child's lead and be adaptable and ready to pivot if you need to would be my top three tips. Mm, they're fantastic. Thank you. That's awesome. Heather, it has been beyond lovely chatting with you today. Um, you are an absolute superstar. Let oh, me just put that out there. You really are. Um, the work you've done in putting together Swan Australia is really inspirational. It really is. And um, I think you should deserve every congratulations for that because that's amazing. And um, I obviously wish the very, very best for your family um, for the remainder of 2022 and beyond. You're doing an amazing job. Terrific. Thank you. And look, please reach out, look at our website, um, swanoz.org.au. Give us a call if we can support you in any way. And please recommend Swan to you, your families if they um, have a Swan child, because we know how isolating it is and we don't want anyone to go on this journey alone. So Absolutely. Very well said. And thank you as always for giving up your precious time to tune into our podcast. We will be back in your ears again next Wednesday. Have a fantastic week ahead. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. 
You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.